So let's go Luke 22. Luke 22. And let's pray as we get into God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you. Uh, what a privilege it is to gather in your name and to spend time in your word, Lord. And once again, God, we just thank you for the written word that leads us to you, Jesus, the living word. And it is our desire that you'd be glorified in all things here this morning. And so, Lord, we just pray that, that Christ would be magnified. We thank you for that beautiful song of, taken from the song of Mary. And we pray, Lord, that you would be magnified this morning as we, as we sang earlier through your word. And so, God, would you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Luke 22. It's pretty interesting when you look at the Gospels because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John spend about, about a third of their pages telling us about the death of Jesus and everything that surrounded the death of, of Jesus, which is kind of interesting because, you know, it's Christmas season. We're celebrating the birth of the Lord. We're remembering that. But relative to uh, his death, the birth accounts in the narrative of Jesus get, you know, far less attention than the time committed to telling us about his death. And one of the things that we've seen in, in Luke so far is that Jesus has set his face to go up towards Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen to him. You know, when we talk about the cross and the death of Jesus, it's important that we understand that as these things were unfolding in Jerusalem, the very things that we're going to read about today, they weren't accidents, okay? Like, Jesus wasn't, like, some victim of circumstance. These were appointments, this was God's plan. This was God's purpose always for his son. These things were determined and arranged by the Father, and they were foretold by the Old Testament prophets. So Jesus was not a victim. Jesus, as he comes to Jerusalem, and the very things that we're reading about today, was a willing servant of the Father's plan. A willing servant of the Father's plan for redemption, to free those who were, cal who were held captive by the by the powerful grip of, of sin and death, and we're under the Father's wrath. And when I think about that, when I think about the fact that Jesus was not a victim, but a servant of the Father's will, to me it makes the cross and the account of his death and his resurrection all the more lovely. Like, I mean, when you talk about a cross, a cross is a ghastly, gruesome thing, but a cross is very beautiful for us who put our hope in Christ Jesus. We say this precious is the blood and the body of one who willingly gave his life to ransom us from sin. And so this was the Father's timetable. Luke tells us it in verse 1. Check it out. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. Now the first Passover, we're familiar with this, the first Passover lamb was slain on the night that the children of Israel were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And the, they took the blood of that lamb. Remember what they did? They painted it on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes. And it signaled to the angel of death as he was making his way through the land of Egypt that this home was covered under the blood of the lamb. And the practice was then taken. God instructed the children of Israel and they memorialized it. And it became this annual reenactment that they would remember and, and celebrate Yahweh's deliverance from setting them free from, from slavery 
in Egypt. So from the first Passover uh, through every year, every annual reenactment that followed, all of them for centuries were foreshadows of something that was yet to take place and the fulfillment was going to happen at this very Passover we're about to read about. The one we read about in this text. See, Christ Jesus is our Passover church. Sacrificed for us. Israel had kept the Passover for centuries and now the Lord Jesus, the real Passover lamb was in their presence. The people were completely unawares of it. Even his own disciples unaware Men who he had told time after time, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. I will rise again. But they were unaware. Now look at verse 2. It says this. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now to me, when I read that, the most striking thing is that they were motivated to put Christ to death, but also that they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of people. You know, the word of God tells us that the fear of man is a snare. That we're to fear God. But the chief priests and the scribes, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. But they had to be careful lest they incite the people. And the people turn against them. Because the people, Lucas told us, were hanging on every word of Jesus while he was teaching them day after day in the temple. And so what these chief priests needed, these scribes, was a mole. Someone on the inside. Someone to betray Jesus into their hands when the crowds weren't around. Jesus, as I just said, was spending his days in the temple courts, teaching the people. They were hanging on his words. Each evening he was retiring out beyond the Mount of Olives to Bethany. And there were people around him everywhere he went. And so here are those who want to kill him. They, they need a spy inside the group close to Jesus. And they got their man in Judas Iscariot. Verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So this is crazy. We read this. Luke tells us that, that Judas was motivated, energized by Satan. I don't think he was ever a true follower of Christ. He was a thief. He was the treasurer of the 12 who was skimming resources from the group. I mean, money played a real factor in this man's betrayal of, of Christ when the when the chief priests and, and the scribes came to understand what motivated Judas, they offered him money, 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he set his Lord, or set the Lord, not his Lord. And so Judas is the inside man that they were looking for. You know, there was a time when a man came to Jesus and he said to Jesus in Luke chapter 12, Jesus, tell, teacher, tell my brother, to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, who made me judge over this situation? And Jesus turned from that man and he turned to the crowd and he said this, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, when I think about 
Judas succumbing to the temptation of the devil and the different things that you and I face that Satan uses and offers up to corrupt a person, there, there are kind of three areas in Scripture that we see very clearly. Sex, power, and money. You know, if it was a guy's conference, I would say this, the, the gold, the girls, and the glory. Those are the things that Satan uses to corrupt a man or a person. That's how the devil has worked to derail people throughout time and history. And for Judas, it was the gold. Like Elisha's servant, Gehazi, who went to Naaman and lied and took treasure and became a leper himself. Elisha said to him, the, the leprosy of Naaman will cling to you for the rest of your life. Or like Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and died before the church. Judas was inspired by the devil and he sold out the Lord. He sold out the best and most loving Master, a man can serve Christ for gold, for money. And I think about this, I think, wow, you know, we have to take heed that we are not false professors of the gospel or those whose lives will be shipwrecked and dashed upon the rocks by the, the lures of the devil. We have to guard against the love of money, Christ said. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul. And so motivated, energized by Satan, the betrayer began to look for the right time to hand the Lord over to those who wanted him dead. And next, Luke tells us about how Jesus sent Peter and John to go get the Passover ready. Somehow Jesus had everything arranged. The Jewish day, let me remind you, the Jewish day starts at sundown, at dinner time. Sundown to sundown, uh, the day starts with dinner and then goes to the next evening. And so we read this in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. So this is interesting because Luca is telling us time and time again, I think it's four times right in there. It was Passover. It's Passover. It's Passover. It's past, there's something that he is driving home. The Holy Spirit does not want anyone who, who studies the gospel of Luke to miss the point that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sins of the world. So, you know, in the scene with all the, the, the crowds and everything, all the action going on around him, Jesus had arranged this somehow, that he'd be alone with the 12. He had done it secretly so that just them and he would be together. He told Peter and John, go into the city. You'll find a man carrying a jar of water. You think, well, that's kind of a strange instruction. Well, it actually was because in that culture, that was women's work. It's just how it was. Guys weren't out getting water. So to find a man when you wandered into the city and carrying a, a jar of water was a rather uncommon thing. So they found this man doing his task. That's how they were to identify him. And he led them to a house where there was a 
a large upper room, all furnished, all ready. They spoke to the master and everything was just as Jesus had said it would be. And they got ready for uh, Passover dinner. How many of you have participated in a Seder over the years? We've done a couple here. I thought I was thinking about this. I'm like, okay, reading this text, I'm like, we're due to do another Passover Seder because it's a wonderful thing to just participate in one and see all the symbolism and all of the actions that go on in a Passover meal. You know, those of you who have participated, you know some of the things that that Peter and John would have been preparing. Of course, there was the lamb and the wine and the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs that reminded the Jews of the long bitter years enslaved to Pharaoh. And they got this meal ready. They wouldn't sit around a dining room table or sit at chairs like we're going to for turkey dinner tonight, okay? We're not going to make you sit on the floor, but they were reclining at table with each other. There were no chairs. The table was low to the floor and they would have reclined on pillows, eaten together with their hands in the same dish. They probably had their heads turned towards the table and their feet pointing away from the table. So if you've ever seen Michelangelo's you know, painting of the famous painting of the Lord's Supper, let's just say this, he got it a little wrong. Sorry, Michael. Uh, there weren't chairs. They were, they were reclining. That's why John's gospel tells us that John was seated at Jesus' side and he actually was resting his head against Christ. And what I love about this is that, that we're going to see this in a second as we read this, that Passover was not about coming to the object of the table. Like sometimes we call our kids, you know, in our house, it's like, seems to be more and more all the time. It's like, hey, when you're called for dinner, get in here, man. Come to the table, we say. Come to the table. That's often how we extend the invitation to our children, and we invite them to the physical, material object around which we gather to eat, the table. And We go to someone's house maybe for dinner, and you're like, you're like, hey, where am I supposed to sit? Where would you like me to sit at the table? But when Jesus gathers with his disciples, I, I want you to notice this. When we read this, it doesn't say at the table. It says at table. At table, the object of the table is not where the emphasis is placed as Jesus gathers with the 12. The original language places its emphasis on what is happening as they gather. There's fellowship. There's eating together. There's the sharing of food and leaning against one another as you eat and conversation that glorifies God. The emphasis is not on the object, but the activity. You know, in Scripture, whenever Jesus speaks about heaven, do you know how he describes it? As a feast. As a banquet. You know, I don't know what you imagine. A wedding banquet. Like, when you think about heaven, what do you imagine? You know, angels sitting on clouds, strumming harps. I mean, maybe your heart is so inclined, as mine is at different times, to say, man, maybe it's just going to be boring. I mean, could eternity be that? Your flesh gives you such suggestions. You know, maybe you think, well, we're going to be floating on clouds, or it's going to be an eternal, never-ending worship service with that one chorus that's just repeated, like it repeated. <laughs> Whatever it might be, let me tell you what heaven is. The image that Christ would first present to you, it's a feast. 
It's a feast, a banquet. See, heaven is to be at table with the Lord. Not the object, but the activity. To be with the Lord, fellowshipping, sharing, eating together. It's a beautiful thing of enjoying one another and sharing in the bounty and the goodness of God. I was thinking about it. I mean, hopefully in heaven I'll be able to maintain this slim figure. Because heaven's a banquet. And that's why we're going to have a banquet tonight. Celebrate Jesus. Yeah, you can say, woo, it's okay. To come and eat and enjoy one another. We want to be at table with each other as we gather tonight. Now look at verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So there they are, they're reclining at table. You know, before the day is done, actually, before this evening is over, Jesus is going to be arrested. Before the day is over, he's going to be flogged and crucified and nailed to a cross. And his lifeless body is going to be placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And to me, that makes what Jesus says here absolutely stunning. I love this. He says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. Another translation says it this way. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. I mean, Jesus was looking forward to this. You know, this is the last Passover. That's what I would tell you. It's the final Passover. Since the time of Moses, every Passover had pointed to this one. That's why Jesus could say, I have earnestly desired to eat this with you. You see, in light of the cross, do you think Jesus was afraid? Do you think that he was unwilling or reluctant? No, he was the Lamb of God who had come for this very purpose. And Jesus said to the twelve, I am not going to eat of this again until it is fulfilled with you in the kingdom of God. See, you and I are going to participate with Christ in that day when he comes again, church. And he sets up his kingdom on earth. Israel will once again celebrate the Passover, this time with full and complete understanding of who Christ is, of what he's done to redeem man from sin and its power, the whole world will participate in that Passover. I bet Jesus is earnestly desiring to eat of that one too. And on this night, the 12 didn't understand. They didn't understand. They could only look back afterwards in hindsight and say, wow, that would have been so amazing. Just if in that moment we had fully gripped and comprehended everything that was unfolding in front of us. Well, I'll tell you what. Jesus is going to give that chance to all who follow him. For us who partake with him, we're going to partake of that, that, that banquet. We're going to partake with Jesus and it will be with complete understanding. Even this is why, you know, Paul teaches us that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, he says this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until what? Until he comes and then we'll participate with him. And it says in verse 17, and he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Man, the Lord's table, we get to come this morning. We're going to participate together in communion in the Lord's Supper. It's an ordinance of remembrance. Jesus said to them, as he's instituting this, do this in remembrance of me. You know, when Jesus introduced communion, he took the bread and he said, this is my body. He took the cup and said, this is my blood. And he gave thanks. When we participate in communion and come to the table of the Lord together, we are, it is a time to give thanks. That's what I would tell you. It is a time to remember the body and blood of the Lord. It is a time to proclaim his death until he comes. And by implication, we proclaim that Christ is alive, that death was not victorious over him. We look backwards in remembrance to the cross, and we look forward in anticipation of his coming. The table of the Lord has past implications. The table of the Lord has future implications, but it also contains, church, present realities for you and I today. It's both symbolic and it's mysterious in its way that it teaches us that we partake with Christ and his blood and his body. We know the bread and the cup, they're symbols, they're emblems, they're tokens, representations of of the body and blood. And at the same time, I would say this, we don't want to remove the mystery from the table of the Lord. Something mysterious happens when the body of Christ, the church, comes together and partakes with one another. We know that's the case because Paul said this, if you come to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. There is blessing and judgment attached in our participation in the table of the Lord because the table of the Lord is a participation in Christ. It's a participation with Christ. And there is a level of mystery to that that I just can't explain. Where Christ imparts his life to his church. Where Christ unifies his body as we come together and share with one another. He said this to the 12. He said, my blood is true drink. And my body is true bread. That's amazing to me that Jesus described his body and his blood, the bread and the wine with the adjective true. It's true drink. It's true blood. It's not like, you know, the modern relative definition of true. Well, it's true for you. It's true for me. Whatever. It's all true. Whatever. That's not the idea of what our culture is doing in making truth reality. This is, this is not truth in that sense. This is truth in the ordinary sense of the word, okay? Meaning this is true to reality. That if you want to participate in the reality of God's kingdom 
and God's church and God's salvation and the life that he offers and the forgiveness that is found in him, then you need to know this. The body and the blood are true reality. And I'll tell you this. You are not functioning in reality unless you participate with Christ because his kingdom is reality. It's true. If you want to function in the reality of the kingdom, then the body and the blood of the Lord is your true food and your true drink. True life is found in feasting on Jesus, church. Spending your life at table. Lord, I come to the table. I want to meet with you, Jesus. I want to spend my time with you, Jesus. True life is found in feasting on the Lord at table. Which makes what Christ says next all the more devastating. Verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. To me, this is just amazing. You know, it's not like, you know, everybody said, Judas, I knew it, man, a rat in our midst all along. No, nobody turned and looked at Judas. They began to point the finger at themselves and say, Lord, is it, is it I? They were looking at themselves and saying, is it me, Jesus? Am I the one? I, I think that's actually a really healthy view of yourself, you know? To have that, not looking at others, but looking to yourself and doing an inventory. And I actually think the reason that they looked inward rather than to Judas or the person beside them was because they were in the middle of communion, they were at table. They were being led to the body and blood of the Lord. And it causes an inward look where you have to weigh your own heart and your own life. Remembering the body and, the, uh, and blood of the Lord is a time to look inward. To test and see if you're in the faith. To check the engine lights and the fluid levels. Test the profession of faith. Is my life resting with its full weight upon Christ? Or is the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world and the fear of man stolen my heart? When we come to the table of the Lord, we're not looking right and left, church. We're looking to Christ and then we're looking inward and we're saying, Jesus, deal with this heart. Put things in order, Jesus. That day, no one suspected Judas. But in a moment, it's amazing, these disciples went from asking, is it me? And then saying, oh, it's not. Well, aren't I something special? I mean, that's the fruit. I would say this. I actually think this is an interesting picture for us of like a real performance-based Christianity. Where the pendulum swings hard and fast from, you know, feeling like a betrayer who can't live up to their own standards to swing feeling like a superstar because you're rocking it for a couple days with Jesus. The table of the Lord trains us to move away from being performance-oriented Christians to a, a, a life based on faith where we're discipled and we understand the work of the cross where Jesus said, 
It is finished. And we cast our lives fully upon Jesus. And the reality is for every one of us, pride has deep roots. It's a hard thing to root pride out of your heart. Of course, our culture celebrates pride, right? It says, be prideful. The kingdom of God celebrates Jesus' dependency and it turns away from pride. Verse 24, a dispute also arose. Here they go, the 12, just like you and me. (laughs) A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For whoever is the greater one, for for who is the greater one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus taught them who is the greatest, him who serves. Him who serves. That's why when our relationship with Christ goes cold, one of the things that we can do to check the temperature, so to speak, is to say, where am I serving for the sake of the kingdom? Is my love for Christ motivating me to serve in my home, my spouse, and my children? Is my love for Christ motivating me in the workplace so that I'm working for the glory of God and not for the praises of men? Am I finding, is my love for Christ helping me find a place to serve amongst the body, his church? And Jesus said, in his kingdom, greatness is to be found in the opposite action of that which is found among the world, those in the world. Worldly greatness is seen in someone who's climbed the ladder, so to speak. They have control over others, not to serve them. They don't use their authority to serve. They use it to rule. And the kingdom of our Lord is the opposite. We we are not to lord over others, but we're to serve one another humbly. And Jesus reminded them that servanthood would be rewarded in the future. Check this out, verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I love this because these 12, these are not perfect men, right? They've got weaknesses. They've got failures in their lives. But Jesus told them because they participated with him in his earthly ministry that they would be honored for their faithfulness and participate with him in the kingdom to come. Makes me think of Joseph in the book of Genesis. He was faithful as a servant, had a rough go too. Then the Lord raised him up to a throne. And so we should not mind being servants today because service today is training us for future rewards, church. But first the cross, then the crown. Jesus had a word for Simon Peter about this. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three, to, until you deny three times that you know me. Uh, Peter 
heard this, and it was deeply troubling to him, as it would be to you and I as well. It's like, no way, Lord. No way, Lord. I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die for you if need be. I will not deny you, Jesus. If all the others fall away, I will not. But Jesus said to him, Peter, before the rooster crows tonight, you're going to deny three times that you ever knew me. It's amazing because, you know, it just tells me we don't know the deceitfulness of our own heart, church. Our own hearts. Thankfully, we're not sustained in the faith by our own hearts. Amen? We are sustained in the faith by Christ. You know, the world says this. You don't know my heart. You don't know what's in my heart. God's word says this. Don't trust your heart. Trust Christ. Put your faith in Christ. And what Peter didn't know was that Satan was working against him. He had asked to sift him. Judas had already been picked off. So Satan's like, hey, man, one down, 11 to go. Peter, next up, Lord, I want Peter. Peter's life was in the crosshairs. And Jesus told Peter, I love this. Peter, I've prayed for you. What an amazing thing to know that Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. You know how amazing that is? That's amazing to know that Christ is praying for you. You know, maybe you feel like no one else is praying for you. Maybe you feel like right now your life is in the crosshairs of the devil. But let me tell you, the one who made the universe is praying. And will his prayers go unanswered, church? Like seriously, will the one who lives forever to intercede on your behalf be ignored by the Father in heaven? When Christ prays for you, will the Father not listen to the intercessions of his Son? I'll tell you what, those are prayers that are going to get answered. His prayers will not go unanswered. The Father will answer. You know, it's interesting, the gospel writers never tell us that Jesus prayed for Judas. I don't think he prayed for Judas. Because Jesus actually said this, for the Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to the man by whom he has been betrayed. Jesus, or Judas did what was foretold by the scripture. But Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. And let me tell you this, God's word promises that Christ is praying for you. He is praying for you. And now Jesus warns them. As this night goes on, that things are about to change. He says, previously I sent you out, I told you, don't worry about your bag. Don't worry about packing food. Don't worry about where you're going to stay. You don't need to worry about those things. I will look after those things. Now they're told you need to consider these things. Why? Because everything's about to change. The Lord was about to lay on Jesus the iniquity of us all. The the Father was going to allow his son to be numbered with the transgressors and nailed to a cross. In just a few hours, associating with Jesus and being counted among his followers was going to be a dangerous, treasonous thing in the eyes of those in power. So they needed to take into consideration these things, Jesus said, both your provision and your protection. Verse 35, let's read it 38 here and we'll wrap up here. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. 
He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Jesus is so reasonable, you know, church. It's just always good for us to remember this, that he's reasonable, that he's practical. We're not those who believe in circumstance. We don't believe in luck. We don't believe, you know, if the stars align, we trust in the sovereignty of our God. We are those who believe in divine appointments. We are those who believe in being led of the Holy Spirit. We are those who learn to adjust to God-ordained appointments and partner with his happenstances and work for his glory, knowing he's working for our good. So, you know, we say this. We trust where God guides, God provides. We go by faith. Amen? But we also know this. Planning for provision and protection is wise in the kingdom of God. I like this. It's not, you know, either or. It's both end. You don't sacrifice one for the other. I think it was Cromwell. He famously said this. I like the saying. He said, trust God and keep your powder dry. Think about it. (laughs) Trust God and keep your powder dry. And the disciples said, Lord, we have two swords. And Jesus said, that's enough. Not like, oh yeah, two swords, that should do it. No, he was correcting them. You guys, enough of that. That's not what we're about. That's not who we are. Peter would mess that up too. Slice off somebody's ear in just a few hours. And Jesus would fix that. And so Jesus warns them, and we'll pause here today as we uh, look at this. It's the Passover Institute. He says this, guys, the climate's about to change. So you need to be prepared. Provision, protection, be led of the Spirit. Know this. I, and I, I was thinking about that. I thought, wow, Lord, is that us in our day? Is the climate changing? Is it a different era for God's church, maybe in Canada, in our nation? The climate's changing. But God's in control. And so his church need not fear. Christ is praying for us. Christ is praying for you. Let's be led of the Spirit and go where he leads.